Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Jesus walks on water. Matthew 14, 22-36 After Jesus fed more than 5,000 people, he went off alone to pray. The disciples got in a boat and planned to meet with Jesus later. For strong wind made sailing on the sea of Galilee very difficult. Late at night, with the waves tossing their boat, the disciples saw something on the water. It was Jesus, but he wasn't in a boat. He was walking on the water towards the disciples. The disciples were scared. They thought the figure walking toward them was a ghost. Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. But Peter wanted to prove that this was Jesus. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water, Peter said. Jesus told them to come. Peter stepped out on the water and walked to Jesus. But when Peter noticed the strong wind, he began to sink. Save me, Peter cried. Jesus reached out his hand to help Peter. What did you doubt? Jesus asked. As soon as they got in the boat, the wind stopped blowing. You are the Son of God, the disciples said, and worshipped him. Good morning, everybody. Hello, my name is Nick. I am the youth pastor here. And I'm so glad to be with you this morning in whatever way that means. Maybe I'm in your living room right now. Maybe you're watching it in your kitchen. Maybe your kids are watching a show and you're watching this on your phone. I don't know. But all I know is that I'm just really excited to bring you this story today and talk a little bit more about it. Uh, This is my third time doing the live stream sermons. And I'm doing it already. I, I've, I've watched myself a lot, and I noticed a couple things about myself. One, I do this a lot, where I like hold my hands together and put them on my, on my little stomach, and I don't like it. It makes me look like a stuffy professor. Uh, I also sway a lot, I've noticed. Uh, Charlie and I were talking about my sermons, and he showed me in like double time, and so it looks like I'm doing this for like 20 minutes. And it's really distracting. Uh, so I'm going to try and be better. I'm going to try and be better, but I'll probably fail. Um, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about fear, about fear. So I want to try something. I know that you're all probably sitting down very comfortably on your couches or in your, you know, in your nice chairs or wherever you are, but I want to try something slightly interactive. So join with me in this if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to list through the, 10, the top 10 fears that people have, the phobias that people have, the top 10, the ones that, the the 10 most uh, recognized and 10 most common fears. So stand with me, or maybe you don't feel like standing, just maybe hold your hand up. And when I say a fear that relates to you, you can sit back down or put your hand down, and we'll see by the end of this if anyone is left standing. I mean, I won't see, but maybe you will. So number one, number one, the number one most common fear is called just social phobia, which is like anxiety disorders around social activities. Like maybe you get really nervous going to a group of people you don't know or a group of people you do know, so much so that it causes anxiety in you. That's called social phobia. So if you got that one, have a seat. And if I was doing this, I'd already be sitting down. Number two, agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is the fear of open spaces. If you don't like going into crowds or where there's lots of people, you have agoraphobia. Acrophobia is number three, the fear of heights. I don't think I need to explain that one. Number four, and this is a hard one to say, so I have to look really closely. 
pteromerahonophobia, a really fancy way of saying a fear of flying. Fear of flying. I don't know if it's, I don't know where that word comes from. Claustrophobia, this is number five. Claustrophobia, fear of confined spaces. Maybe going into an elevator freaks you out. Who knows? Entomophobia, fear of insects. Fear of insects. Uh, and this is, I know Charlie's, ophidiophobia, the fear of snakes. Fear of snakes. That's a, that's a big one for people. Number eight, fear of dogs. Fear of dogs. Number nine, astrophobia, fear of storms. If you're on the East Coast in Florida right now, you might need to have this particular one. Uh, and number 10, last one, trypanophobia, the fear of needles. I remember there used to be the fear of public speaking used to be on this list, but I guess people have gotten over that. Uh, so those are the top 10 fears. And if any of you are still standing or still have your hands up, congratulations. You are a true, true, awesome uh, you know, person to be revered and, and you know, imitated. Good for you. My biggest fear isn't on this list, but it's, for me, it's pretty crippling. My biggest fear, and it's pretty specific, is being in the ocean where it's too deep for me to stand up. When that happens, like let's say I'm, I'm going out and, and all of a sudden it drops and I can't stand up anymore, my heart rate jumps like 30 beats per minute immediately. I am instantly terrified when that happens. Uh, it's, it's pretty bad. And I can tell you when it started, too. I can tell you exactly when, you know what? I'm already doing the swaying thing. I can feel it. I can see it. I'm going to stop. That's my new biggest fear, swaying on camera. No, I can tell you when it started. I was a small child, and we were, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 11. We were in Hawaii. My dad lived in the Air Force. So whenever I say things like I was in Italy or I was in Hawaii or I was in the Philippines, I'm not trying to be pretentious, although maybe I am. But it's because my dad. It's my dad's fault. So we were in Hawaii, and there was, we were at the beach, and there was this platform out in the ocean where you could swim out to, and then you could jump, or you could dive, or you could just hang out and whatever. And so I asked my mom, can I go out there? And she said, sure, no problem. So I swam out there, and I'm hanging out on this thing, and it's kind of cool, and it's, I don't know, it's getting kind of late. And all of a sudden, I, I want to go back, but for some reason, I look down into the water, and I swear... It looks like it's 100 feet deep, and there's probably 50 sharks down there just waiting to eat me. That's what was going through my mind at the time. I don't know why. That's just, it just popped up, and I couldn't get in the water. I really, really just, there was nothing that could happen, that could change to make me want to get in that water at that time. And so for when my mom tells this story, she, she gets really upset because she was put in a really hard place. My dad wasn't there. He was probably off flying in a jet somewhere. And my two youngest sisters were at this time not swimmers. And they would have been like, I don't know, five and, and two. And so she was dealing with them on the beach. And then she had this son of hers that was stuck out on this platform in the middle of the ocean that she couldn't, no matter what she yelled and told me to do, it didn't matter. I wasn't getting out. I wasn't getting back in. And so my mom is just completely confused as to what to do. And so she asked these, these two older ladies on the beach, could you please just watch my kids for me? And they're like, sure, no problem. So she borrows like a kid's floaty. I think it had like a unicorn head on it. And she's paddling out to me because my mom wasn't exactly a great swimmer either. And so she needed like a floaty to get out there and she needed some way to bring me back. And so she gets out there and she is just so upset, so angry at me. And I get it. Uh, and she just sort of yanks me, and I'm like terrified. I'm screaming, and she brings me back. And then once I can stand, it's all of that fear just goes away. I can't explain it. I don't know, but that is my, that's my biggest fear. Uh, and that's pretty much when it started. Um, so 
my fear is going to stop me from ever being a surfer. I, I used, I've tried it before. I can't handle it. Uh, I'm never going to be an oceanographer. Uh, I'm just never going to do those things. I'm never going to have any interest in doing that stuff. If it's above my knees, I'm a little anxious. I just can't handle it. But see, the thing, I, could, I can talk about how I hate that fear. I wish I didn't have that fear. But the truth is, fear is a very important emotion. It keeps us alive. Our fears keep us safe. If someone ever says they're not afraid of anything, that person probably won't live very long. We need fear to stop us from doing things that are incredibly dangerous. A toddler has very, very few fears. My, my daughter, Kate, I remember very clearly when she was, oh, I want to say two, two or three years old, she was in an upstairs bedroom and she had a big window by her bed. And she used to just pop her head up and look because she could see when one of us was coming home or leaving and she'd wave. But then there was this one period of time where she started climbing up onto the window frame and would stand with her whole body pressed against the window and like bang on it to get our attention if we were downstairs. And it, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I like ran upstairs and told her, you can't do that because my mind was she's going to bang on that thing. And it was kind of an old house and the window was just going to fall out and she was going to plop, fall right on the driveway. I was terrified of that. And she just didn't get it. Didn't make any sense. That was impossible. There was no way that was going to happen to her. So we ended up having to move her bed away because she, she just kept doing it. Uh, it was ridiculous. My, my nephew can't swim, but he often runs straight into the pool, just runs, sprints, into it and just dives in and so much so terrifying my parents they had put one of those because my, my sister and their kids live with my parents right now they had to put one of those fences up that stops so your kids can't go through it he just did it all the time it was terrifying he, he had no fear of it and my son cash i'm afraid if he ever encounters a wild animal he will have no fear because he tells me all the time all the animals that he can beat up. He can beat up a bear. He can beat up a shark. He can definitely beat up a tiger. He's told me many scenarios in that one. Uh, and it mostly just involves punching in the face, and that's going to do it. So, my watch had something to say. Uh, it's ridiculous. Kids, toddlers especially, they just don't have fear. But we need, we need fear. My son needs to be afraid of wild animals. My nephew needs to be afraid of the pool. My daughter needed to be afraid of falling from the window. Fears, they can keep us alive, that's for sure. But today, we're going to explore something about that. Fears can keep us alive, but they can also keep us from fully living. So that's going to bring us to our story for today. As you saw in the video before, we're going to be talking about Peter and, and Jesus walking on water. And in order to tell this story, I've got, to, I've got to expand it just a little bit to give you kind of the full picture of the day. So our story today starts with the, Jesus and the disciples receiving some bad news. They learned that day uh, that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was executed. He'd been in uh, Herod's palace for a while in the dungeons, and, and he was beheaded, and uh, he's dead. And that's the news they receive at the beginning of that day. And so when they receive that news, they decide, all right, well, we need to get away. So they get in a boat, and they go to a desolate place far away from people to be alone, to have some time to, I don't know, grieve, to think, to talk. But as was common with Jesus when he tried to get away, people found him, they saw him, they he was in a boat going across and they followed him on land until he got off and they just crowded around him and it says Jesus had compassion on them and he began to heal them. 
And so that's how he spends his day. He, he hears that his cousin is dead. He seeks solitude, but instead he ends up healing thousands of people. Um, I don't know, much that might have been a little bit better for him that day. Who knows? And so the sun begins to set. It's, it's time for these people to go home. The disciples, in their very prudent, logical way, tell Jesus, hey, we need to send these guys home because we don't have anything for them, and everyone's going to get hungry. And when you get hungry and you don't get food, you get hangry, and we'd like to avoid that with these thousands of people. And Jesus is like, no, that's okay. You feed them. And this is when we get that story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? There's a boy. He's got some bread and some fish, very little amount, like five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, okay, we'll, we'll use that. And so he prays for it, he blesses it, and then they start distributing. And somehow this food stretches to the point that it feeds many thousands of people uh, and so much so that they get leftovers, right? There's leftover baskets of food, of bread, and fish. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this because this is going to stretch into a theme that goes throughout the day. Um, Manna was the bread that Jesus, or that God sent the Israelites when they were in, when, in the desert, right? Manna was a cook-it-yourself, no-leftovers kind of food. It, it fell from heaven, it was on the ground, they would pick it up, and they'd, they'd grind it, they'd turn it into some kind of flour and make bread with it. Um, and Jesus, what he's doing here is he is making a better version of this, right? He's taking fully made, fully cooked bread and passing it out. And not only is it fully cooked, they don't have to do anything with it. They can have leftovers. There's 12 full baskets of leftovers of this. Manna was a make-it-yourself, no leftovers. God, Jesus is giving them bread that is fully cooked and could, you could have as many leftovers as you could possibly dream of. And in Deuteronomy 18:15, Moses told the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, because Jesus was essentially one-upping Moses here, they started, the people started to make this connection. And it says in John 6, after this happens, the people were ready to take him and make him king. But Perceiving this in their hearts, Jesus sent his disciples back out into the boat, and he withdrew deeper into the mountain. So Jesus could tell this is one of those moments that they were going to try and rise up and just make him king and make him be the one that they thought he was supposed to be, make him be the kind of leader they thought he was supposed to be, and he knew this wasn't the time for that. And so he, he hid in the mountain, and he sent his disciples away. Sending the disciples out in the boat, it did a couple things, right? It got them away from the crowd, obviously, and it gave them an opportunity to ponder, to consider the significance of what had happened so far that day. This is a weird day for them. They start their day finding out that their friend and, and this, this great man, John the Baptist, had been wrongfully executed for no reason. Um, but also Jesus is doing these amazing things. And, and you've got to imagine, at least if I was in this group, things that would be in my mind would be, he healed all these people today, performed that weird miracle with the food, but he allowed his cousin to be beheaded. Why? Why? So these, these have to be thoughts and feelings that are rattling around in their minds when they go out into this boat, and Jesus says, I'll catch up with you later. And soon, they're dealing with a storm. They're out on this Sea of Galilee, and it begins to get very windy, and the waters are rising, and they're churning, and they're moving, and they're in a boat, and Jesus is not with them. They don't have any plans. They don't know where they're supposed to be going, and it's a storm. And here is where we're going to get into our, our main part of the story. It was late. 
It was between three and six in the morning. And the disciples were about three to four miles out from the shore. There are heavy winds. The waters are moving. It's very unstable. And Jesus does something that I have to admit I probably would have done too. He decides to take a walk on the sea. He looks at it and he says, now, yeah, now's the time. I'm going to take a walk. When I was at the beach, I was sitting out at sunset this, just a couple weeks ago, and I saw a guy. It looked like he was walking on water. It was in a distance, and I kept looking. He had these, what it's called an elliptical paddleboard. He had like a handlebar on his paddleboard, and he was moving his feet up and down. It looked like he was just walking on water, but it's like a paddleboard with an elliptical little paddle in the back of it, and it, it's probably the closest most of us are going to get to walking on water, and I just saw that, and I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and it's important to note here that, that God used to have a very different way of dealing with water when it got in the way. He used to just part the waters, right? We saw that uh, the last time I spoke, he parted the Jordan River, and then before that, he parted the Red Sea. He's parted it for Elijah and Elisha. He's, he usually, when water gets in the way, he just sort of moves it, right, and walks on dry land. In this particular case, Jesus does something way better. He just walks right on top of it. He, it's, you know, throughout this story, you're going to see where Jesus takes these miracles that Moses had done and he does a better version. You know, we saw this already with the food. We've seen it now. He's walking on water. It's just really awesome to see that, you know, he, he, he said many times, you've heard it said, but now I say this. And now he's saying, you've seen it done this way before, but now look at how I'm going to do it. It's just awesome. So Jesus walks a few miles on the water. And this part right here, if I could be so presumptuous as to speak for Jesus, I have to say this is like the top five coolest things he has done while he's there. He's got some solid alone time, taking a walk. That's awesome. He is out late at night. That's always fun. He's exercising complete and absolute authority over his creation for an extended period of time. He's told the storm and the waters to stop before, but that was just sort of like an instantaneous thing here. He is absolutely exercising total control over nature and just walking on water, something that is completely and utterly impossible. It, you can't do that. And he's doing it for this, it's, you know, I've taken three-mile walks before. I don't know, it usually takes about an hour, maybe more, uh, to really take a long walk like that. And he is just sitting in some awesome Jesus me time. He doesn't do this a lot, where he's alone by himself for a long time. And this one, it's just so, I don't know. I think it's important to remember that even Jesus, who was so self-giving, so selfless, he knows that every once in a while he needs to take some time for himself. And this is one of those moments where he is alone and he is walking, and not just taking a walk, but walking on water for a long time. And that is just awesome. I love this part of the story. It really makes me think about me time. Like when I was again at, at the beach just a couple weeks ago, I, uh, it was my birthday and something I'd wanted to do for a long time was I wanted to rent a, a scooter and just scoot around on the beach for a day. So I did. I rented this thing and I am not ashamed to admit that I wore no shirt and just scooted around on the roads by the ocean for like hours. And it was awesome. I loved every single minute of it. Uh, I even tried it without a helmet for like five minutes, but I couldn't because it's so stupid. I couldn't imagine riding around without a helmet. I got to be safe. I can't handle it. So Jesus is having some awesome me time. Then he gets close and the disciples can see him. Okay. 
It says in, in Matthew, when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, Try and tell me that you wouldn't have thought this maybe just a little bit. If you're seeing somebody walking on water, you're not going to immediately think, oh yeah, there's a dude walking on water. No, because you've never seen that before. No one on the planet had ever done or seen anything like this before. The automatic response has to be, that's not real. This isn't a real person. It's a ghost. That's the only option. These, these were very mystical people, and, and the, the idea of a ghost being seen was far more likely than the idea of seeing a human man walking on water. And so, you know, you've got to imagine a lot of these guys were fishermen. They may have even seen something like this before, like a ghost maybe, or something that looked like a ghost. So their first response is, it's a ghost. I don't think this is an example of their lack of faith or their or foolishness. This is just a normal human reaction to think that something walking on the water in the middle of the night is a ghost. That's what they thought. I probably would have thought the same thing. Then there's Peter, right? Then there's Peter. They see this, and Peter's response is what I wish that my response would be. You know, he immediately jumps up, and he has to say something, right? He says exactly what I wish that I had the courage to say. I can tell you if I was in that boat, I would have been quiet. I would have been hiding behind a couple guys. I would have watched to see what happens, to see if this really was who Jesus said it was, I, I, I wouldn't have had the courage that Peter had. But Peter said and did what I wish I could say and do. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you out on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Peter required more proof, right? He didn't, he, he, he needed to know for absolute certain that this was, in fact, Jesus. So he says, if it is you, let me come out there. And Jesus doesn't say, well, you little faith, how dare you ask me that? He's just like, okay, let's do that. Come on. And so, again, normally when water's in the way, he parts the waters, right? Not in this case. Not in this case. Jesus allows Peter to do exactly as Jesus was doing. And the amount of faith that it took for Peter to take that first step is mind-boggling to me. See, when I see this, I'm forced to ask myself, how many times have I stepped out in faith like this? How many times have I felt the call to do something weird or crazy or just out of, out of control, and instead I let fear tell me it's impossible? The answer is way too many times. Because you see, we can often talk ourselves out of doing the crazy things because it's easy to convince ourselves that it isn't really God telling us to do it. And that's why Peter said, if it's you, he needed to know. And I wish I had a story where I've done something amazing and, and God really, but I've never, I don't know, I've, I don't have that kind of courage. I don't have, I wish I did. I do know a guy that uh, was a professor of mine at college. His name was Mark Rutland. And he was a missionary in South America for a spell. And he was there and they'd assembled a few thousand people to come and hear him speak. These were people from local villages that spoke Spanish. Uh, and, and Mr. Mark Rutland did not speak Spanish. And so they'd arranged for a translator to be there. So he's there, he's ready to go, he's about to go on stage, and all of a sudden he gets the news, the translator's not there. Nobody is there that speaks well enough English to translate for him. Now in this moment, he had a couple options, right? The normal option would be, oh, well, shoot, let's wait. Let's do it tomorrow. Let's wait until we can get this guy here. Um, 
Or he could just say, well, I guess I can, we can try. Let's get somebody that sort of speaks English to do it. Let's do the logical thing. But in his heart, he felt something saying, just go up there. He can't explain it. He's, I've heard this story so many times from him. He can't explain why he did it or how it happened. But he walked up on that stage. He stepped in front of that microphone, and he just began to speak. And I'm sorry if this disrupts your comfort level, but he spoke Spanish perfectly. And from that day on, he continues to be able to speak Spanish. It was a miracle that happened. And he doesn't claim, like, oh, I'm just so full of faith. He just says, I don't get it, but God gave me that in that moment because he had the willingness to step up and just try. And that's what Peter is doing here. He is trying something crazy, and it, and it works out. Then it gets difficult, right? Because it seems that there was an invisible stipulation in this contract that Jesus made with Peter that said, come out to me, uh, that if you let your fear overcome your faith, it's not going to work anymore. And so it says, and when, G- when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Then Jesus says the same thing to his disciples that he says about four or five times. He, he says this phrase to them, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I want to stop down for just a second here. O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? How do you hear that coming out of Jesus' mouth? This is probably not the first time you've heard this phrase or this story. I'm curious. I want you to think to yourself, how do you hear that coming out of his mouth? Is it a, is it a tone of anger? Is he showing disappointment? How do you picture Jesus saying this? Now, this phrase, oh, you of little faith, we need to talk about it because it's not what we think. It's not how it sounds. This, this is actually one word. It's, it's, it's pronounced oligopistos, and it appears to be a word that Jesus made up. It's like saying, you little faithers. It's like a little nickname, right? It's, it's more of a nickname than, than an actual phrase, and it's not meant to be a derogatory comment or a shameful criticism, but it's just sort of a nickname that he had for them. Uh, Delin, one of our pastors, who was nice enough to let me read through this book, uh, this week, and I read this chapter that talked about this exact phrase, and it was really, really eye-opening for me. Because I'll be honest, when I've read this story before, heard it, talked about it, it always did seem a little harsh. I always would read this and be like, why is Jesus so upset with Peter? That's not cool. Why is he doing this? There must be something I'm missing. I, I read this as if Jesus was angry, as if he was put off by this. But the truth is, when you really look at this Jesus is, is their teacher, and, and on this particular occasion, Jesus gave Peter an especially long leash, letting Peter imitate his own unbelievable behavior. And after Peter's short success and failure, he wisely called out to Jesus, who was within arm's reach, like any good teacher would be. A good teacher often says, try something wild, I'll catch you. You see, Jesus wasn't angry or frustrated with Peter. Would you be angry or frustrated with your child who walked for the first time? I mean, would you see them take two steps and fall and be like, come on, keep going, what's wrong with you? No, no, you'd say something cute like, oh, you crazy little kid, that was so awesome, why'd you fall down, keep going, let's go again. He's he's saying this as almost like in in adoration, oh, you little bathers, why'd you doubt? So good. And... It's weird to think about how I used to read this. I really did think that Jesus was upset. I really did. 
But I think when you really take a look at it, it's just not true. He wasn't angry at all. He was proud, I think. So after Jesus, after Jesus saves him, they go back to the boat. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And without even a word this time, he stops the storm, calms the wind. And the reaction from the disciples is exactly why Jesus did what he did that day, going all the way back to the healing and feeding the 5,000, them saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You know, when God displayed wonder upon wonder in full view of the Israelites, the plagues, parting the Red Sea, pillars of cloud and fire, manna coming down, water from rocks, thousands of quail dropped in the camp, complete defeat of their enemies, parting the Jordan River, the walls of Jericho falling on the ground, and on and on and on, he did so in order to show Israel who he really was to keep their eyes focused on him, to reveal his divinity and his love for them so that they would trust and obey and put their faith in him and through that faith be a light to the world around them. And here in this story and throughout the story of Jesus, we see him doing the exact same thing. He is displaying wonder after wonder, miracle after miracle, to not just show the crowds who he was, but specifically his disciples that he is the Messiah, so that when he is gone, they will be filled with faith and be a light to the world around them. Jesus is showing them that he is the perfected Moses, the better Joshua, the perfect and divine leader of the world. So when we we look back really closely at, at Peter and what he did, we have to ask this question, what did Peter doubt? You know, Jesus says, oh, you little faither, why did you doubt We assume Peter doubted Jesus, right? That's what it seems like. We assume he doubted Jesus, but if he calls out to Jesus when he's thinking, obviously he knew that Jesus could save him. So it wasn't that he doubted that Jesus had the power to do what he was doing or to let Peter do what he was doing. What he doubted, what he doubted was that Peter could do what Jesus can do. Did he believe that he could be like Jesus? He has seen all these things that Jesus has done But maybe he's never stopped to really think, can I do that? You know, I know in my mind, I often hear this refrain, I'm a screw up, I'm a liar, I'm a fool. Or Peter may be thinking the same thing, I'm just a fisherman, I'm just, I'm only, I'm not like you. And what Peter and all his disciples and and we need to learn here before Jesus left in the story is that we not only need to have faith that Jesus can save us, but that we can actually be like Jesus and do the things Jesus has done. Not, not just miracles, but more important and more difficult things like loving unconditionally, forgiving all who wrong us, looking beyond someone's past and giving them another chance, putting total faith in the Father to provide for us everything that we need. These are things that Jesus did and that we also can do. You know, some of our fears are for our benefit, but if God calls us to go beyond those fears, he will always be there with us, no matter how dangerous or impossible it might be. He might tell us to try something wild, but he'll catch us if we fall. And it requires faith. Now, just because you have fear 
Just because you struggle with fear, that does not disqualify you from these things. It doesn't mean that God is done with you in any way, shape, or form. He will pull you up and bring you back into that boat every single time you call out to him. We are not condemned for our fear. That's the way I used to see this story. I used to see this story and think, wow, Peter screwed up. He really messed up there. He could have done that. He, there's no reason he should have fallen. But that's just not true. He did something outlandishly crazy, and God caught him when he fell. That's the story that we're looking at here, not one where Peter was almost successful. Peter was more successful than any human in the world at that moment. No one other than him has ever done that. Jesus let him try something wild. And when we remember this, that there's no condemnation for fear, we just cry out, and he brings us back up. See, faith and fear can coexist. That's what being a human is. We're constantly in the process of pursuing God who replaces our fear with faith over time, but it's a long process. So maybe we want to know, how do I actually grow this faith? How do I build this faith up? Are there special exercises I need to do? Do I need to try and walk on water to really build that faith? Do I need to put myself in dangerous situations? No, no. You see, you can't just cause your faith to grow by yourself. In Ephesians 2, 8, number, or 2 verse 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We cannot grow our own faith, but we can. Obviously, like a garden, we can water we can fertilize. We can make sure that it has access to sun. We can do everything else that you need to do, but we can't physically make it grow. Just like you can't take a tomato plant and just start pulling on it so that it'll grow. You can't like blow onto the blossoms and cause the tomatoes to come out. You got to wait. You got to water it. You got to fertilize it. You got to make sure it's not getting beat, eaten by insects. You got to protect it, and then it'll grow. And it's the same with our faith. God will grow that faith, but you've got to water it. You've got to step out of the boat. Here's the bottom line. Faith in Christ is a lot like stepping out of a boat to walk on water during a storm in the middle of the night with all your friends staring at you. It's dangerous. It's, it's wrought with uncertainty. And sometimes it asks us to do something completely unconventional in front of our friends and family, and it can be completely terrifying. And we can find ways to convince ourselves that it's not really happening. And, and being afraid of that doesn't make you a bad Christian. It just makes you a human being. We all, all struggle with fear. And Jesus says, if you will try something wild, I'll catch you. If you put your trust in me and you just keep getting out of that boat, I will replace that fear with faith. See, fears can keep us alive, but they can also keep us from fully living. Peter almost drowned. His life was in danger. But do you think he, for a second, regretted taking that step? I don't think so. Jesus is asking us to do something that's equally unbelievable, to put your faith in a God that you can't see, to strive to live as Jesus lived and to lay down your life in order to go 
where he wants you to go. So come on, little faithers. Let's get out of the boat. Let me pray.